with everybody being away from God and and the things that were going on wrong, then it's, you know what, right here, dead in the center, there's still hope. The king is coming. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Karen. Amy. Greetings. And Tracy. Good morning. Morning. Guys, it is the first weekend of fall, and I have started the tradition. I'm in my binge phase of candy oh. corn. I need to do that sometime this month. <laughs> I waited till the first day of fall, and finally I was like, that's it. I'm going to go buy some candy corn. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know people ate that. I love some, it. Some people year. hate it. Some people hate it. Uh, but I, boy, I'll tell you what, between now and Thanksgiving, I don't think I'll be able to get enough of it. So uh, I don't know. It's very strange. And sometimes I'll mix it with peanuts and sometimes I just eat it. If you mix it with it, see here, you got to eat it like one color at a time. You have to bite the little white tip off first. Yes, you do. You know, you have that. This is a federal law. I'm pretty sure. Yes. It, or it should be. Oh, that's how I eat a Milky Way. <laughs> Yeah. But if you mix it with peanuts, then it's okay to just slam a whole mouthful, handful and in your mouth with at once. Almonds. With almonds. Maybe I'll try that. I didn't you know there were rules. rules. Oh, yep. yes. There are rules for candy corn. Absolutely. <laughs> there are rules. Unfortunately, um, Matt's doing it right. So I don't have yeah. to, like, and <laughs> him. Now, now you can change it up, and it's a little weird. You can change it up and turn it around and eat the yellow piece first, but you you might be labeled as a bit of a heretic, but not so much as if you just throw a whole piece of candy porn in your mouth at once and eat it. So, but but yeah, if you mix it with peanuts, though, it's like a salted nut roll, and those are those are pretty awesome. So, oh, <laughs> you should try it. You should try okay. it. It's okay, good stuff. I like salted nut rolls. There you go. If you like that, then then you'll like peanuts with uh, with your candy corn. Yeah, I don't know. Some people hate candy corn. I mean, hate candy corn. I don't understand that. I don't but... hate it. It's just pretty bland. Huh. Interesting. Maybe you're eating it wrong. It's because you eat it wrong. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, let's let's get into our discussion for this week. Guys, this is episode 140. Been doing this wow. 140 times. It's most of us. Some of us. Half of us. Some of I'm us have exhausted. only been doing it 139 times, and some of us have been here less. But you know, I'm the I'm, I'm the 139. <laughs> I'm, I'm the less. <laughs> but 140 episodes, and uh, I was just looking at our demographics this day. We're not doing terrible. We're not doing terrible. We're we've got we're in the double digits of listeners, so <laughs> not bad, not bad for for uh, no promotion and uh, you know no budget. So hey. <laughs> so uh and uh i'm getting a lot out of it anyway so but anyway episode 140 and we are beginning this week talking about zechariah chapter 9 so our 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 context just to be re the little review here is that the israelites have come back to uh the to jerusalem from babylon they were allowed to come they've been told that they can rebuild the temple uh, we've seen how that hasn't really been happening in the way it should, but uh, but the people are still there. But and there is some opposition coming at them um, from from outside as well. And so, but then as we get into uh, chapter nine, then 
uh, God has been speaking through Zechariah, and uh, we get we get a little indication of God's in, intentions here of what's going to happen. And he starts speaking ag- out against some of the lands around Jerusalem. He speaks uh, specifically of, uh, and I'm see if I can pronounce these right, Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, and Sidon. And he specifically points out uh, the wisdom, what he calls the wisdom of Tyre and Sidon. And it's interesting to me because it's like he's pointing out that Tyre specifically um, has been very economically wise, yet they are still going to they are going to see a downfall coming. Is that the way that you took that? I was just wondering, I have in my notes here, and maybe this was just me, but I just kept kind of thinking about them as as almost like the churches later on in the Bible, you know, when he's breaking down like emphasis and Galatians and things that they're missing and things that would happen. I don't know. Did anybody else kind of think that? I take that as a no with a dead silence. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it's an interesting idea of like, you know, that's a good way to apply it to the modern era. Yeah, I think my take on it was more more of a lesson of don't uh, don't rely on your financial success to be your salvation uh, in the face of of God, especially if you're in opposition to God's uh, God's intentions, because his intention here is for the Israelites to be rebuilding. And they're not, at least in part, because of opposition from the outside and. uh uh, but you know we do have these 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 nations these cities who have gotten very financially successful and God is saying no that's not going to be enough for you. It goes on talking about uh, Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron says specifically that Gaza's king shall perish and Ashkelon will not be inhabited, um, and a mixed race will settle in Ad- Ashdod. Now that that phrase there, I think that. If we take that out of context, that could raise our hackles a bit of this concept of of uh, like a mixed race is something bad. But I guess we've just got to think of it in a time when a lot of pride was kept in, oh, you know, lineage and such. And so um, the idea of a mixed race settling there is more, I guess it's kind of a, uh, just kind of speaking out that your culture is going to be uh, a compromised. Your definitely the lineage will kind of fade, and, and a lot of the things that you've had pride on will just kind of uh, start start to be diluted. I guess it's a dilution. It says the pride of the Philistines will be cut off. I don't know exactly what that means. Yeah, I was curious what that was. Other than I guess you know the Philistines have shown from a lot of the things that we've read, a very strong national pride. You know, we've seen this constant conflict between Israel and the Philistines. And I mean, I'm thinking back, you know, it just takes me back even to uh, like, you know, Goliath and the the attitudes that was there, attitudes that was the attitude that was there uh, against Israel, you know, a, a real it was prideful. It was, you know, it was um, very, very much a we're better than you, you know, rah, rah, or how's it? <laughs> We've got spirit. Yes, we do. 
type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yelling back and forth across the battlefield at each other. And and um, it didn't it didn't really seem to be really, from what I could tell, much of a reason for their conflict other than they thought they were better than each other. And so I guess when we say the pride of the Philistines will be cut off, we're just we're really just saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's just that they're 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 going to be knocked down a peg. I'm just thinking about the fact that these people have all dwelt in this same region for years and years, you know, um, hundreds of years have gone by and they've been exposed to this God of Israel and they've known that the God of Israel is is powerful and good to his people and, you know, watches over them and things like that. So they've had a chance to know about him and then they're still, you know, drinking the blood of their sacrifices, putting their trust in silver and gold, you know, that kind of thing. And and it's kind of like God is saying, um, Israel, I will reestablish you. And these surrounding peoples are refusing to acknowledge me. So, I mean, in the big picture kind of way, I guess I'm looking at it and thinking, okay, God's trying to, he's mostly speaking to to his remnant people at this point, you know, these people that have come out of the Babylonian captivity, but he's also saying some of them will come to me. Did you guys feel like you, I I feel like there was a a sense in which he was also saying, let's see, I guess it's verse seven. Um, Some of them would forsake like their idolatrous practices and join themselves to Israel. And Yes. And so, again, we get this, you know, yes, there's punishment. Yes, there's God withdrawing from certain people for certain practices that they do. But he's still available. And if you're willing to come to him, uh, you can join yourself to his people, which is interesting. So I, I do know um, that Ashdod was sort of considered the home of the... Uh, who are the big guys? The An- Anakim? Anakim, the giants that were there? Yeah, that was yeah. Sort of where they came from. And, and I and I wondered if they were considered the pride of the Philistines. You know what I mean? They're in Ashdod. Possible. Because it Could says be. a mong- so and here's the way I translated it. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod and and Ashdod was one of five primary cities to the Philistines. And so so it was already a significant city, but it was particularly known for its powerful people. So now its people are being replaced by a mongrel people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm, getting, yeah. what I'm getting at there? That's the only way I can understand to translate verse six. So a mongrel people will occupy Ashdod and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. So if you've got five primary cities all throughout your Philistine lands, and one of them is the primary home of a, a race of giants, like that's it's and it was right on it's right on the sea, isn't it? It seems like it's right on the sea. So they just, you know, they had they had all, they had everything available to them. It would have been a very wealthy place, a very powerful place, and and now its primary source of strength and bragging rights is gone, and there's a mongrel people living in it. Mm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense if you're if we're looking for a specific thing to be that pride. And so certainly I can see that absolutely where yeah, their 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 strength is just being pulled out, like the rugs just getting pulled out from under them. Yeah, Absolute. and then and then like like Amy's saying, you know, the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. That'll be that'll be demolished, and then everyone who's left will belong to our God. Right. I like verse eight. I will encamp about my house because of the army, because of him that passed by, and because of him that turneth, and no oppressor 
shall come through them anymore. Now I, for now I have seen with my eyes. We get that vision again of God always watching and protecting. Yeah, that's a good promise there. You know, knowing if you're on God's side and if you are, you know, in his quote unquote house, uh, knowing knowing that he is there and he is going to be protecting it. That is a, that is a very, it's a comforting, mm-hmm. it, it's a comforting thought. And it's kind of an emboldening thought too, because I guess, you know, to me, it, it, it gives you the opportunity to feel like you're on the side of something really good. So I like, um, I have this side-by-side comparison Bible where it's got four versions. And I, there are, if anybody has ever dug into the different types of, of Bible translations and why they're different and how they're different, there's basically two categories of them. Okay, so setting aside paraphrases, right? So sticking with the not not paraphrased translations, the, you have word-to-word translations like the New King James, and then you have meaning-to-meaning translations, which is where they tried to get into the colloquial local meanings of the word and bring that into the translation, right? So there's word to word and meaning to meaning. So New King James says, no more shall an oppressor pass through them for now I have seen them with my eyes. And then the NIV, which is a meaning to meaning translation says, never again will an oppressor overrun my people for now I am keeping watch. Mm, I like that. Wow. So I like reading those side by side because I want the word to word, but like mm-hmm. I never lived there and I didn't speak those languages. So I also want the meaning to meaning. So I get a lot out of reading those two next to each other. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, it's good to have the multiple ways of, of looking at that and reading it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Mine, if I could read Hebrew, you know, that's that would be awesome. But I would just go by myself <laughs> to school and get busy. But I can't. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and even still, you know, even if we could read it now, would we under, really understand, you know, the phraseology? I mean, we have phrases in English that if you say them and somebody tries to interpret that word for word, it would make absolutely no sense to them. And so same thing. I mean, even if we were able to read the words, unless you understand a little more of the culture, you're not going to you're not going to quite get some of those meanings. So that's why it's. I think it's good to have multiple I mean, I'm sitting here. I don't have a side by side, but I do have my King James, my new King James on one side of me. And over on the other side of me, I have my NIV just because sometimes I go, I don't know what I'm reading. Right. <laughs> and so having a, a little different perspective on it helps, even if it's even if, you know, I don't know, some people don't like different translations for different reasons. I don't think any of them are perfect, but uh, I think if you can look at them from different multiple directions, you can come up with a pretty good concept of what's going on. I was reminded when I read this of Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. And I I really love that passage because I feel like that's what we need. We need awareness of the fact that our God is with us and cares about us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all. That was my whole thought. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good thought. All right, well, as we move on, then, we get into a a pretty interesting section of this chapter. that, And it should be a section that sounds familiar to us, I think, um, because of this uh, verse 9. I'll just read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, 
if we don't read that and recognize Jesus in that, looking at it from hindsight, then I don't know what counts as a messianic prophecy. <laughs> because uh, this is certainly interpreted in the Gospels as as being as Jesus moved going into Jerusalem. I think this is so fascinating because here he is going through this kind of um, judgment against these surrounding nations. And then suddenly he goes into this messianic prophecy. And I guess I just feel like there is something about the mind of God and his ability to um, to work through the written word, through the scripture. Um, somehow the spirit you know, changes this right now. And, and, and it reminds me of a verse that, you know, we're pretty familiar with the, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And, um, I think that passage has been misused a lot of times, um, because what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is whenever the spirit is, is giving someone a message, Jesus comes shining through. And I think that's what that passage really means is right in the heart of this prophetic message, which seems unrelated to Christ. Suddenly there he is. And um, so I, I just I think uh, all I'm trying to say is prophecy is not human. Prophecy is definitely from the spirit, because this is something that you wouldn't have seen coming through those first passages. And yet, wow, there it is. I don't know if mm -hmm. that makes any sense at all. Sure, yeah, because we've just been reading passages about how, I mean, ultimately the passages were kind of about the protection of Israel, but at the same time, uh, it's about the downfall of the surrounding nations. But at the center of it all, then, like you say, we find is this concept of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the one who is going to bring all the salvation. Well, I liked um, in verses, let's see, what was it? 11 and 12. I liked again reading this reading my two versions side by side. So I liked the hope that it restored. So it says, as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Mm -hmm. Right? So we think of a strong, I mean, we know how we think of a stronghold. Like, how would you guys define it? Well, generally a stronghold, I mean, that's something to keep keep things safe on the inside and keep the bad things out. Yeah, it's like a fortress. Yeah. A fortress yep. is what yeah. I mean. Fortress is the word that comes to mind for me, mm -hmm. but I've always, but stronghold is like the old-fashioned word for fortress, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, NIV translates it fortress. So return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. So prisoners make it sounds like, makes it sound like it's a bad thing, but then it's a prisoner of hope. It's like, no, your hope is restored. And then he finishes by saying, I will restore everything to you double. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah, like, I just thought that was cool. Yeah. And again, like what Tracy was mentioning earlier, like applying, you know, like it kind of sounds like talking to us today. Like we're kind of looking at a mess around us. Can't see what's supposed to happen. Go back to your stronghold of hope. You will be restored double, right? Mm. Not here and now, but eventually. Yeah. And, and calling yourself, call, being called a prisoner of hope would imply that you can't help but be hopeful. Right. I that, like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're a prisoner to something, it's not like you have much of a say in it. And so um, if so, if you're a prisoner to hope, then you are just going to be hopeful kind of no matter what the situation is, because there's nothing else you can be. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting concept of a, of a for a prisoner. 
I had mine circled here because what I put is I put that it was like a hidden gem of hope. I didn't I didn't initially start like we were saying reading this and thinking, oh, this is where this is gonna go. But it was saying, you know, with with everybody being away from God and and the things that were going on wrong, then it's you know what, right here, dead in the center, there's still hope. The king is coming. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I took it as that, you know what, there's always that hope that's there. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's that's largely I think that is largely the message of scripture to begin with. You know, I, I think Christians over over the centuries, over the I don't know, whatever you want to say, but um have at times had a really bad habit of focusing on the judgment, focusing on the negativity, uh, instead of looking at, at the hopeful side of things. Yes, there is judgment, yes, there is consequence for actions. But the central focus is the hope. The central focus is the salvation. Yep. And and unfortunately, whether it be uh, by accident or by or what, we've had a tendency to point people that don't get punished. And I think that's that's been a wrong tactic for us to take when we should have been the all along and should be now focusing on on the hope. When you're learning to ride a motorcycle or even when you're learning to drive a car, you're taught to look down the road at, you know, kind of at the horizon. Don't don't look directly in front of the car. Don't look directly in front of the motorcycle. Don't necessarily focus on the obstacles because you will veer toward them. It's, it's just a natural tendency. You're going to start moving towards whatever it is you're focusing on. But if you're focusing on a goal, if you're focusing to the horizon, You'll get a little better perspective. It'll be easier to navigate around things, and 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 you won't have that tendency to veer towards those things that are dangerous obstacles. I thought it was interesting how in verse ten, you know, here it is. There's messianic prophecy, and then he starts describing how he's going to cut off the chariot and the horse and the bow, and he will speak peace unto the heathen. So here we have this sort of judgment against the heathen coming. And then here comes the Messiah, and suddenly we have peace to all the nations. And, and that, that is so important to our understanding, because over and over again, through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the only purpose of Israel being special and set apart was so they could be a witness to outsiders, so that they could show the life of God and, you know, what does life with God look like to the rest of the world? And they kept failing because they were like, well, we're special. And then here he is again saying, you know, I'll speak peace to the heathen. So to me, that was really important because it comes right after that messianic prophecy. Well, yeah, and that's a that's quite a message to be given to the Israelite people at the time. You know, when they're thinking that they're the central focus of everything, and God is saying, "I'm going to bring this to everybody. It's going to be for for everyone, not not just for you. It's going to be for anybody who will accept it and listen to it, uh, and specifically." You know, it'll be specifically given to them and, you know, and in the face of these surrounding people who have been thorns in Israel's side for so long, because for centuries, literal centuries, and maybe even, I don't know, are we into millennia at this point of, of not accepting God when they've been seeing how God specifically has worked with the, with the Israelite people, uh, I think, uh, I don't remember which one of you it was who said it this morning, but they've seen they've seen the results and they continue to 
not accept. But yet God is still going to push for that. He's still going to try to get them to accept it. He's still going to offer it to them and um, and and it will be there for them. Well, I just think it's interesting that it actually does happen during the Gospels. Like the centurion trusts Jesus and his child is healed. And, and the Syrophoenician woman trusts Jesus and her child is healed. And, you know, there's he he makes salvation available to all of these people who are not his, you know, what because he, he keeps saying, I will call the people who were not a people. And he's speaking to all those mutts, you know, like you and me, like most of us are, are mutts and most of us are not pure. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't think I, I know just, anybody that's not a mutt. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and, and in America, we're pretty proud of being mutts. Like we call it the melting pot and we're all interested in each other's background and blah, blah, blah. But there are places where that's not true. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Well, yeah, it certainly wasn't the case back then. It was very much about keeping your keeping your lineage intact and keeping keeping that. I don't know. It's such a strange phrase for us to use now, but for keeping that bloodline pure. I mean, kind of. okay, because all the way back to Egypt, there was a mixed group. Remember, there was a Mm -hmm. mixed group, a large multitude of mixed peoples who Mm -hmm. came out of Egypt with the Israelites. Right. Yeah. If there was some kind of criteria set out, if they lived with them a certain amount of time, adapted to their ways, married in and had children with them, like there were different criteria, then they were considered an Israelite. So is it a bloodline, right? Or Mm. is it an ethnicity? Do you see what I'm saying? Like a culture. Yeah, culture. So I just just remember that there was was a lot of marrying in. Like there was the... um, the uh, the chick from Jericho that married, what was his name, Salmon, Sal- Salmon, and then was part of the lineage of Christ. Like she was an outsider, but mm-hmm. are you talking about Rahab? Yeah, Rahab. Like she Rahab, that, to, that chick, Rahab. The, but all the way back to to Egypt, this happened. Like there were people that were close to the Hebrews, and when they came out of Egypt, there was a a mixed group that came with them. If they kept themselves separate, then they were treated as separate. But if they mm. integrated themselves, then they tech, then they really kind of became Israelites according to God's definition. So right, it's right, clearly right. not the bloodline that's the thing. It's the way of living, which is a really yeah. fascinating way to look at culture yeah. compared to how we do. Yeah. Well, and that shows, too, how this has always been the case that God has been wanting to see happen uh, of of people coming coming to Israel they were supposed to be the central place that people would come to to receive this uh and you know Israel didn't do such a hot job of that they kind of just kept it to themselves uh, as always getting the wrong ideas and and uh putting the emphasis in the wrong places this is kind of off the subject but back to verse 9 i, I didn't want to fail to say that when it says Behold, your king comes to thee riding on a donkey. He is just and having salvation. So first of all, wouldn't that be something if we had a king who was just, you know, like, wow, in the history of humanity, everybody just wants their government to be just. And there's this promise of someone who will come and bring real justice. And then secondly, and having salvation and the word salvation 
has the same root as Yeshua, which is the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his Hebrew name was Yeshua. And I just think, wow, that's so cool. Like salvation, you know, the way out of all this trouble and all this pain is his name. Like that's mm. who he is. He's the way out. And I just, I, I didn't want to fail to say that is all. Yeah, no, that's very important. In fact, that verse actually was was sticking out to me a bit too, where he's talking about he is just and having salvation. I was just mm-hmm. having an interaction with somebody on uh, Facebook yesterday, which I keep saying I'm not going to do, but I did. But um, <laughs> you know, but he, he he this person, you know, said something along the lines of yes, God is love, but he's just, and mm-hmm. you cannot separate those two. You can't say. He is loving, but he is just. It's he's loving and he is just. The justice comes from the love. You you cannot have justice without love. Otherwise, it's just vindictiveness. And and so that is such an important thing for us to kind of remember. God is loving and just. In fact, you you know, it's 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 one and the same, really. I think it's it's almost. It's almost like when people say that. Oh, I'm sorry, Tracy. No, go ahead. Well, it's almost like when people say that, that they're wanting to say when he's love, he's permissive and he lets things happen that are that, you know, like I can do evil in my life. Whereas what you're saying is justice and love are the same. Like we we all actually want justice, Mm -hmm. like in a real sense, we want things to be right. Um, and that person that you are interacting with maybe misses that. They think, oh, well, I, I like it when he's kind to me, but I don't really want justice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly what. Well, the motives were in in the the context was it within and as a so office subject, but it was within the context of what happens to the uh, 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 unrighteous later. You know, do they burn in hell forever? Uh, or 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 are they annihilated you know there's there's there are different schools of thought in that we haven't gotten real deep into that here on the podcast yet but um but that was the context of what happens there how does god treat the people who don't follow him uh and and how does that move into eternity and he said well god is love but he's just and so that was the that was the context there yeah yeah i see yeah I was just going to kind of say, too, that it's it's just the mentality that we have. Sometimes we just want to compartmentalize God mm. into that love yeah. and, and justice kind of part of things. And and I think we had talked about this man, a, a few a long, long, long time ago about, you know what, we just need to look at it as love. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis for it all. You know, and I think that's hard for us because we want that that judgmental part to it. Well, I think we've been conditioned to think of that judgmental part first. You know, we have this we have we have this ingrained thing in us to want to to look out, you know, watch out. Don't get don't get squashed. Don't get smited. You know, do the right thing so that you don't get in trouble type of deal. And but if you can look at it from a position of love, that changes all of your motivations completely. Yeah. So basically. You know, everything that all of you said. So what I was thinking was we are finite and in our finiteness, we have limited emotional capacity in in Harry Potter. um, This girl named Hermione has a crush on a boy 
and he is not responding well to her incredibly mature teenage feelings. And she accuses him of having the emotional capacity of a teaspoon, which is basically us. And so we, we have trouble thinking of God as both and all, right? Mm-hmm. We, we think either or, like we think either or. Like, do you remember, do you remember when they were getting ready to, they were getting ready to go into the holy, into the, into Canaan and, uh, who is it? Was it, uh, Joshua was off praying and an angel appears to him and, oh my gosh, who is it? And he jumps up and he's like, who are you with? Are you for us or for our enemies? And the guy goes, no, I'm, I'm from God. Yeah. Right. There's a, there, there's a thing that is both and right. We don't have to be either or. And so one of my. A couple of my favorite passages is Psalm 85, 10 and 11. Uh, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the ground and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, right? So there's room for everything in God. And then um, the other thing, the other passage that was coming to mind is in Psalm 103, in verse eight, he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Then in verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As great as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So we have such a limited perspective that we see either or. God, from his perspective, sees all. And he sees what we're capable of as well as what we're actually doing. He sees the purity of our human soul as well as our stupid human behavior, right? And he can he can handle all of it, which is mm. awesome. I'm very glad I'm not God. And if I was God, somebody should take away my smite button because I can't even handle traffic nowadays. I'm telling you. <laughs> Who are well, these How did they get in front of me? Oh. Well, <laughs> Oh well, since we're going that that road, have you ever seen? Um, oh, what's the movie I'm thinking of? Bruce Almighty. You ever seen Bruce Almighty? Yeah, been a long time. <laughs> the way he deals with traffic is just to part the seas. <laughs> oh, that was a that movie was that movie was better than I thought it had a right to be. <laughs> uh, it ended up actually being pretty good. Did a pretty. I thought it did a pretty good job of actually kind of showing. Uh, God's character, but uh, anyway, total, total aside, total aside. Uh, <laughs> there is uh, no Bruce, so moving on. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, let's see what what's left here in chapter nine that we want to talk about. Um, you know, God mentions the covenant uh, because of the covenant. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So I mean, we can see how, how how one this covenant is still this is still in place. That has been in place since, well, you know, I, I, I'm tempted to say since Abraham, but honestly, I think it was even before that. It was just kind of, it was just kind of spelled out with Abraham, but that it's, it's always been in place where you be my people and I'll be your God. And, and, 
And, and so God is still promising this. And he talks about, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, which immediately brought to me, uh, my, to my mind, um, the picture of Joseph being in the cistern when his brothers had thrown him in there. Um, and then, um, it wasn't that long ago. There was a prophet also who had been dropped into a cistern and was, you know, threatened to basically have to live out the rest of his days in there before he got pulled out. And so the, this is imagery that uh, we've kind of seen before, too. Uh, and there's imagery here of uh, Judah being God's bow and Ephraim being God's arrow. I don't I don't have a total understanding on that, but it's but it definitely is coming out. It says against uh, the sons of Greece. And so I think this is talking about as Greece would be moving in and taking over the land that had been Babylon's. And as Greece comes in uh, eventually, uh, but um well, they're under Medo-Persia here, aren't they? Babylon's already mm-hmm. gone. So he's talking about the uprising of Greece, which well, is yeah, third. yeah, Babylon, yeah, Babylonia is no more. I mean, I'm just when I say Babylon, I'm just talking the city more than anything. But okay. yes, but um, but yeah, as Greece comes in, it seems like they're not going to have a lot of of impact on what's happening to Israel. And I don't, you know, historically speaking, I don't know if we get a lot of detail on what Greece was doing to it for to Israel at the time. I mean, I kind of have the impression that they were more or less left alone until Rome came in. So it would seem here that this promise is God saying that you're not going to have to deal with the with the Greeks so much. And then the last little bit of chapter nine, it really, to me, sounded like maybe some end times type of thing, ta- talking about blowing trumpets, you know, God's salvation in that day, uh, people being like the jewels of a crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those last few verses, 14 through oh, 16 at least, uh, just seemed like some looking forward maybe to some end times type of uh, themes. I, I did really love verse 16 because I feel like it, well, it reminded me of a song my mom used to sing. Do you guys remember the song, When He Cometh? Yes, um, I was just going through my head. Yes. And that was huge in my childhood. Like, I think that it was precious. Like, my mom would sing us those hymns as we were going to bed. And that is exactly where that hymn comes from. I don't know if I know that one for sure. I'd have to hear it. You're going to, can you sing it for us here? Just a few more. Maybe not. When he cometh, when he cometh to something, something, his kingdom, all the jewels, precious jewels, bright gems for his crown. Yep. Nope. I didn't know that one. Nope. Didn't know. Yep. I thought of that when I read that verse also, Amy. (laughs) We can be a different generation and more educated than these two hoodlums together <laughs> well, now, we've just well, it's another uh bridge we've had singing in our show now yeah, yeah. yeah. i think uh we're 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 set for a for a grammy now well i sang guys you just you know <laughs> actually i'm a little surprised that we don't know it tracy because we grew up in a church that was big on hymns but i know i guess that one just got got snuck that by one us. escaped us yeah <laughs> Alrighty, well, chapter ten brings us into oh, I, I don't know the title of uh, of the section here in my Bible is the restoration of Judah in Israel, and it begins by talking about it says, "Ask the Lord for rain." It says, "Because idols speak delusion and diviners envision lies, 
And so as I'm seeing this, as we're asking God for rain, of course, I get ideas. Maybe our listeners are familiar with the term ladder rain. I think we've even come across that term here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and with rain, you know, it's ladder rain. I was in Joel. Uh, yeah, and we're talking about kind of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, I kind of interpret that a little bit as wisdom of understanding and discernment because as the idols are, quote unquote, speaking delusion and diviners are envisioning lies, we're being told, ask the Lord for rain. So I think this is an important for part of it for us to remember, maybe not just for them at the time, but for us, like a daily remembering to ask God for wisdom, ask God to help us to see through the delusions, help us to keep our eyes focused on what is true and and asking for that rain. And Beth, if I'm not mistaken, it says, yeah, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. And so this is a this is an agricultural phrase for them, knowing, you know, at different times of the season when they would plant and harvest and whatnot, they would be counting on rain at different times of year to to water water the plants because they didn't have irrigation like like we do here in Colorado for sure. Um in fact, there's parts of even the United States still that they come. My 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 wife's family is largely from Iowa, and they are just amazed at our irrigation practices here in Colorado because we're really a pretty dry area. Yeah. Uh, and some, but some areas like, you know, we have big sprinklers and all this that waters all the time. But in some areas, they just wait for the rain, and uh, and so that's what we're talking about here is these different times of of, uh, you know, planting and harvest and stuff. And so ask God for rain during the latter rain. And I think that latter rain is kind of like that last really good rain before you're going to have to harvest, before you're going to harvest. This is kind of an aside, but I, I feel like this, there's a principle in here, which is super important that, you know, just bring all of your needs before the Lord, just in a general sense, your life with God should involve the fact that every need is brought before the Lord. And, and I have something that I'm working on at my veterinary clinic, and it's a big decision that's going to involve a lot of money. And we're going to probably build a new facility. And in the night, I was worrying about that. And I remember thinking, no, worry less, pray more. And so this morning I was just praying about that issue and just saying, you know, Lord, I need guidance on this because I don't know which is the best decision. And, um, and, and I know, you know, this has all sorts of prophetic significance, this verse, but for me, part of it was just remembering that he cares about the little things and even like how I operate my business and that God is, you know, he promises, Jesus told us that God will send the Holy Spirit to guide us. So I feel like I can rely on that. Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, if he tells you to ask for something, uh, I think we can we can definitely rely on whatever it is he's asked us to do. Uh, we can we can we can count on him to follow through. So the verses, so like ask the Lord for rain in the springtime is he who sends the thunderstorm, all that. The verses that follow that are the contrast point, which when I look around modern society, oh my goodness, these these ver- this verse verse two jumped off the page at me. Mm. Oh my word, the idols speak deceitfully. So ever so, what's an idol? An idol is anything that we p- focus our time and attention on that isn't of God, right? That's an idol. That's mm-hmm. worship. Right. So we set that up as our primary focus. And man, we in our finite either or state, we cannot serve two masters. Right. We know this from the Bible. So 
we we set these things up with our time, attention, resources, whatever, and they become our idols. The idols then speak deceitfully. Of course they do. They're not of mm. God. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. And that also reminded me of the Bible text that says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Right? Mm. So if, right. We, if we make idols, if we make idols of anything lower than God, then we will be deceived. We will be misled. It doesn't mean that they're all evil. I'm not saying that. I'm saying anything lower than God is fallen. And it might be trustworthy to a point. It might be trustworthy at a certain phase in history. It might be trustworthy with a certain topic. I'm just saying anything lower than God is fallible. And if you follow that to the exclusion of God, you will be misled and you will be. And, and then the result is people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. I love it because I feel like those passages have confused me in the past because God seems like some sort of like if you read this in a cursory manner and you didn't have a relationship with God, you might think, wow, he's really pretty full of himself because he's constantly saying, worship me and don't worship anything else. And yet, if you look carefully, what you start to realize is if you are worshiping God, you will have sanity. And if you worship anything else, if anything else has your primary focus, you start to lose your grip on reality. And he even makes fun of, I mean, you remember those passages where he's talking about, you know, the prophet is talking about the fact that a man goes into the forest, he cuts down a tree, part of the tree he burns in the fire, and part of the tree he carves into an idol and worships it. And God is making fun of them for that, because he's like, do you realize how foolishly you're behaving? And so this idea of our reality if we're focused on God and if we worship the true creator, we will have legitimate sanity is very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Sanity and peace, peace. Yes. You know, when I look in the midst of the storm and what I have written down on mine is just today's today. Today's times just mm -hmm. wandering for anything, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and just everything that's going on and nobody can really get seem to get a focus. And it's like, you know, we just need to focus on God. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I could have erased my underlining and then underlined it a second time without ruining my Bible page, I totally would have like this that, <laughs> out of everything I read today, that ver or everything I read for today, that verse was just like, pay attention to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the next verse, when it goes on, talks about God is saying, my anger is kindled against the shepherds. I had to read that a couple of times because I was missing the context there. And forgetting to link it with verse two, you know, they're they're without shepherds. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Well, the shepherds were supposed to be leading. That's the point. Mm -hmm. And they're not. And that's why God's anger is kindled against the shepherds. Well, and, and, and also implied in that is that the people are sheep. They need a shepherd. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it's it's not flattering for us, but. We have to, we have to, we have to recognize that as much as we try to spout that we want freedom and we want independence and we want this and that, everybody seems to always be looking for somebody to follow. Always. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You, I, I don't think there is a person 
including myself that I've ever met who, who had a 100% original thought that led their life because everybody is constantly looking for something to follow, someone to follow. And, you know, y- you hope that whatever you're following is leading you in the right direction. But if the shepherd, if the shepherd's taking you the wrong, the wrong way, I don't know. I guess you gotta, you have, you gotta be able to get, be a little smarter than a sheep, I guess, and 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 look for for something different to follow. But you know, but I put, I think that put a lot of um, accountability and a responsibility, and how much it is on the shepherds. Absolutely. You know, it's like that's a big undertaking. There's a lot of responsibility with that, and and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The leaders, the leaders, the shepherds, they are in a they are in a position of tremendous responsibility and um, you cannot take that lightly. So if you guys remember this, this chapter here and a little bit of chapter 11, but mostly chapter 10, it reminded me of the first part of Jeremiah 23 when we read through that, which is like, again, it's like, woe to the worthless shepherds where, you know, you. It set you up to lead my sheep, you know, and this knowing that they are sheep and they need a shepherd and I've set you up to to help lead them. And this is what you did with it. Well, in Jeremiah 23, he follows that sort of scathing rebuke of the of the failed shepherds with a promise to go and retrieve his sheep from all lands and bring them back. And if anybody can be trusted with that task, of course, it's God because he knows all of us better than we know ourselves. So that's that was one thing I wanted to say. It really reminded me of the first part of Jeremiah 23. And then the other thing is, as a redhead, I would just like to say that wool makes me itch and I am unhappy. <laughs> you have a tough time being a sheep then, don't you? <laughs> You're allergic to your own wool. End of comment. Oh. <laughs> um. Uh, there's talk here about how from Judah will become a cornerstone and a tent peg. The cornerstone aspect, uh, definitely comes back into play later on. I think, um, with the idea of, I don't remember where it is. Where is the play? Where is the verse? We're talking about how the, uh, they rejected the cornerstone. You remember what I'm talking about there? Oh, yeah, that's in the yeah, New yeah. Testament. I don't remember where it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's New, New Testament. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember right off where it is right now. But the, the notion that they rejected this cornerstone in the story, I mean, yeah, when you get to it, uh, I don't think it's spelled out specifically in the Bible, but you have to, you kind of have to look at some historical context that when they were building, um, if I remember the story right, when they were building the temple, they they actually tossed out a stone that looked like nothing to them. And it ended up being the actual block that was supposed to form the corner of, of the temple. It's, it was one of the most important pieces for providing stability. Well, and this is here talking about how out of Judah will be the cornerstone and the tent peg. If you've ever uh, put up a tent, you know that you've got to, you got to put pegs in just to stick it down and you gotta you gotta have your guide ropes and stuff and that's how you get stability for your tent and so as you're building also as you're building uh with bricks and rocks you've got to have you've got to have a good solid uh uh base at those corners to keep things from falling in on themselves 
<laughs> I found it. It's in First um, Peter chapter two, verses seven and eight. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner, and the st- and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he's talking about Christ, and he's talking about the fact that the spiritual leaders had rejected him, and yet he is the head of the church. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a stumbling. He's a stumbling block for those for some people, and yet he's holding up the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we're, maybe that's not the first time we've been introduced to the concept, but it definitely gets put forward here of this cornerstone coming from Judah. I think it's another, yet another bit of a messianic foreshadow here. Talks about how God will strengthen the house of Judah as though he had not cast them aside. You know, we've just gotten through talking about how, how Judah was carried off to Babylon when they had to spend... 70 years in a whole other land and now god is saying i'm going to strengthen you just just as if i hadn't done that which is an indication to me that god's purpose was never to just discard them it wasn't for them to just simply be taken away it was for a purpose and now we're seeing that he is going to rebuild them he's uh refocus everything and and show that his purpose is to build them up, not just to discard. And there's even some talk here of what I take as being talking about missionaries a bit. I will sow them among the peoples and they shall remember me in far countries. So it sounds it it sounds a bit to me like, you know, this message will be carried out to other places. Um, maybe not right now. We do know that this happens um, in the in the New Testament uh, and, and God's message gets gets spread far and wide eventually. But to me, that would, yeah, that sounded a bit like uh, we're talking about some missionary action there. Uh, Egypt and Assyria will lose their strength as Judah rises. These have been two very strong nations in the area, and they will diminish. We really, I mean, I don't think we really hardly hear anything about Assyria anymore. And we think of Egypt more of as a land that was once very powerful and strong. And we're, you know, we're in a bit of awe of what they once were, but they are not anymore what they what they had been. I really like these verses down towards the end when he's talking about um, and he will pass through the sea with affliction and will smite the waves of the sea and the deeps of the river uh, shall dry up. And then, you know, so this imagery, I always enjoy the imagery where God has power over the depths of the sea, because to me, nothing is more terrifying than the monsters that dwell in the depths of the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm always very intrigued that he uses that imagery because there is nothing that is not within his control, Mm -hmm. not even the abyss of the ocean, not even the sharks, you know, none Mm -hmm. of that is outside of his control. And so these images to me are super powerful. Yeah. Well, yeah, in that perspective, even just the images of the sea itself, not even what lives in it, but just the water. And you see what it can do to a ship out there. Or sometimes you see these um, uh, videos of waves crashing into a lighthouse and the lighthouse is huge. And those waves come and crashing around it and, and just enveloping it. And you're just thinking, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe the power that is in the ocean. Uh, yeah. When it really gets raging and it's terrifying and fascinating and and humbling. And yet God has power over even that stuff. And so that's so, uh, so one of my favorite verses in the Bible is actually in Jonah, because it's funny. For one thing, it says that the Lord spoke to the great fish 
and the fish vomited Jonah up onto the shore. Mm. <laughs> and I love that in two regards. One is because, of course, it's sort of funny. And secondly, because God speaks to the fish. And so, again, here's this enormous, powerful beast. And God just says, all right, let's let him go. Mm. Um, I find that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, you don't think of a, you know, when I, you know, fish, whale, whatever it was, usually when you look into the eyes of one of those, you know, some, some animals, it seems like you can see thought processes of a sort fish, fish are just blank, you know? And sometimes you look at whales, some of the bigger ones, you know, if they're not really active, they don't look like there's much going on behind the scenes either. (laughs) Um, And so the idea that God can just say, okay, it's time, spit them out and they do it. Um, That's, that's, yeah, that is kind of impressive. So I've had an aquarium before and um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I think that their lack of facial expressions maybe fools us because they're, they definitely like they, they used to recognize the kids. They used to, when the kids would go over and, you know, put their little faces down by the aquarium the fish would get excited and come over and wiggle all over the place and they'd go from swimming lazily to swimming excitedly like they don't have normal facial structure right Mm -hmm. but if you guys have ever gone down to youtube or something like that and and looked at the collections of um video footage that have been caught by people around the world where animals have been in dire straits and approached humans for help they're they're really interesting like wild animals fish sea creatures whatever that have approached humans for help because like they're stuck they've got their head in a whatever they've got something tangled up in their fin they can't swim you know whatever the issue is and they're they're cognizant that they're down and they somehow know that humans will help them that there's a higher state of being and they go to the nearest human for help even though they are even though they are terrified and either run away or whatever as soon as they're done. But then others of them, like they run away to a safe distance and then they kind of turn around and say, thank you. Like there's, there's more going on in there than what it looks like. So I get what you're saying, but I actually think that animal instincts are put there by God and that they are more, more in touch with things and the hierarchy of the earth than sometimes we are. Yeah. I think there's some truth in that. Well, I think about this a lot and I applaud what you said, Karen, because I really feel like as a veterinarian, what I see often in the world is if animals are under the care of a good human, their life is good. And if they're either not under the care of a human at all or under the care of a bad human, then things are terrible. And I I think about that concept of dominion, you know, because people misuse that idea, of course, of the original dominion that God gave. And yet, you know, we live in this fallen world, and yet there are good people who try very hard to take good care of their creatures. And to me, that's fascinating to to look at and to think about, um, because what you said is true. Animals know uh, sometimes, hey, I'm in trouble and I need a human. That's that's interesting. You can't explain that through an evolutionary concept. 
Um, and then the second thing, if you don't mind, Matt, is mm. I used to read a, an author named Conrad Lorenz. And Conrad Lorenz was a early animal researcher. He studied animal behavior. And he did those, those studies on uh, imprint training. So like the first thing that a duck sees, it thinks his mama. You know, do you remember those kind of things? Mm-hmm. But he talks about he was feeding his fish. He would always feed his fish at a certain time of day. And the African cichlids, um, they always gather their young in the evening. And the male goes around the aquarium and picks up the babies in his mouth and then takes them over to a sort of nesting area that's more protected. And he says he was feeding the animals too late one night. He got home late. And so he's feeding them too late in the evening. And the, the papa has already picked up the babies in his mouth and he throws the food into the aquarium and the immediately the male grabs the food. And then he says, I saw him think, he said, I saw his eyes shift left and right. And he spit out both the baby and the food. He grabbed the food, ate it, swallowed it, and then grabbed the baby and took him to the nest. Hmm. But he said he, he went to take a bite and he thought, Oh, wait, wait, my baby's in my mouth. <laughs> but it was so interesting because to what Karen had to say, you know, here's a fish thinking. So that was, yeah, I just thought those were such great stories. <laughs> to be fair, I also don't think that the whale had an early life moment where it said, here, my Lord, send me. <laughs> so I'm not shooting for like, <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, he would have had to say it in whale. Would have sound more like, here am I, send me. There you are singing again. Yes, oh, yeah. Too much Pixar, too much Pixar here. I did that <laughs> Somebody's been watching too many cartoons again. <laughs> okay, well, okay, so as we get into, uh, we move into chapter 11 here then. To me, the narrative felt like it took a bit of a shift. Because we've been talking about, it seemed to me, where it's been talking about how God is going to protect Israel, is going to raise them up, is going to do all these good things for them. Now, it, it, if I was reading it correctly, it sounded like like now it shifts towards, in fact, the, 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 um, the title in my New King James is the desolation of Israel. So I had to, I was really having a tough time wrapping my brain around it because it felt very much in contrast to what we had just read. You know, it starts talking about desecrate or excuse me, devastation uh, described. It says for specifically for regions of Lebanon and Bashan and Jordan, I guess sort of my takeaway from it though, and you guys can jump in here if you want, was that God wants to give blessings, but because those regions rejected uh, the messianic shepherd, that they're going to end up with desolation instead. Uh, I actually kind of stole that from my from my NIV uh, study Bible's notes. That was kind of their interpretation: is that is that they were rejecting the Messiah, and so they would have desolation instead of of being uplifted. How did how did you see that? I think we've seen this in the past before. That it's once again it's all laid out there in front of them, and. There's always that distinct possibility that they, well, in all essence, they go the wrong way. Mm. They continue to go the wrong way. So kind of what everything we've been reading is another 
long drawn out if then statement. If you do this, it'll be good. If you do this, it's going to be bad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the way I was taking that, too. I mean, he's spelling out. The, you know, these shepherds have been bad. We're going to have a good shepherd. There's, there's been, there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, promise given, but like always, God's promises generally come with conditions. I think to me, it's why are these flocks marked for slaughter? Is it because of human corruption or is it because of divine judgment? I guess that would be the question that to me is the place to start. Yeah, yeah, because God, yeah, he says that, feed the flock for slaughter. Well, you know, I mean, on the one hand, you're feeding the animals. Sounds great. But you're feeding the animals to fatten them up and mm-hmm. so that they'll, so the, so that they get killed and used for whatever, you know, generally food or, 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 or whatnot. And so who is he saying this to? Who is he telling to feed the flock for slaughter is kind of my question, too. So what if? So, by the way, again, a contrast point between the word-to-word translation and the meaning-to-meaning translation. New King James says, feed the flock for slaughter. And NIV says it like this, shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Oh. So, it made me wonder, okay, so here's, let me, I'll just read the, like, the whole thing. This is what the Lord my God says, shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished, right? So the slaughter sounds like it's a bad thing. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. So, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staves and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. And in one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. So there's, it sounded to me like there's three local entities, powers, governments, whatever, that are mishandling the flock, and that God comes in and wants to clean that up. So when he says shepherd the flock marked for slaughter, he's saying stop slaughtering the flock, shepherd them instead. You see what I'm getting at? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now the verse, let's see, verse, where is it? Verse seven. So if you read in in New King James, again, this is an interesting translation point. It says, I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. Okay, and then in NIV, it says, then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. All right, so I went and looked up the original words, the original Hebrew words, like why were the names of the two staffs different? So here's what I found. So the word that's translated favor in the NIV is the Hebrew word, it's a masculine singular noun, and it comes from the word noam. And it translates um, kindness, pleasantness, delightfulness, beauty, or favor. Okay, so that's one of the two staffs that he's working with. And then the other one is a masculine plural noun. And I have no idea how to pronounce this, this, but if I look at it phonetically, it looks like hobolem. And this means a cord, a rope, territory band 
for company. So, and then there's other, there's like um, union, you know, there's different things in it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. He's talking about, he's talking about them needing basically someone to pay attention to them and create union rather than slaughtering them for money. You see what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. And then when he, when he puts these two facets of shepherding into place, he gets rid of three shepherds in a month. So that to me speaks of the local, the level of corruption that has been going on around the sheep and mm -hmm. why they needed to be rescued. Gotcha. So that's kind of where I went with all that. No, that does, that does make sense too, because I mean, it did sp spell out three regions, Lebanon, Bashan, and Jordan. Yeah. Uh, and that how they were good. And then we talk about three specific shepherds. So, and that so makes sense. through these, through this, however he did it, through destroying their assets is basically what it sounds like. He destroys their assets. He destroys the thing that makes them powerful and makes them a solvent, powerful area. And then by doing that, he takes out their power structure over the sheep. Gotcha. No, well, so I think that was super helpful because I, I but I want to reiterate what I think you were saying because you did go into a lot of detail and I, I found it very helpful. So are you basically saying God is looking at the ones who are slated for slaughter and saying, because verse seven says, I will feed the flock of the slaughter. I will feed the poor of the flock. And he keeps saying that. And then verse 11, um, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And so essentially they were, they were bad shepherds and he is removing them and saying, I will take over the feeding of the poor of the flock. Yeah, because they're slaughtering his people. So the so the, right. the flock marked for slaughter is marked by the human the human powers that be. And he's right. stepping in and intervening, removing the power from the powers that be and rescuing the flock and feeding them and taking care of them. And and removing the threats against them. That's the way I took it. Okay. I like that. That's helpful. Yeah. That yeah, is helpful. But then there's, you know what? In verse in the second part of verse eight, there's not, not a great response from the flock. It says the flock detested me and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. go well. This is, you know, God's attempts at salvation are not often well received by the flock. Sheepy though we be. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I think we prefer our, our smaller gods are idols that we can see and control and walk up to at least that's what i've noticed a lot of humans prefer something tangible boy you get you get too uh you get too intangible you get too invisible you start tapping into the the spiritual world you know what does the new testament say the things of the things of god are foolishness to those who are carnal minded and i and it, it appears to me that the flock has ended up in a bad place where they they don't even when the real shepherd appears, they don't even want him. Yeah, it's showing us too here that even God has his limits. You know, like we were talking about where God is love. Yes, he's he's got his limits. He, you know, there will be a point where he will not continue to exercise in futility when he can recognize that doesn't matter what I'm what I do. You're not going to you're not going to change. So I'm going to let you have at it. Go, go, you know, go for it. Yeah, and and uh, eat each other basically. Yeah, 
So I'm just <clears throat> looking further down and again, fascinated by the transition from this time in Israel's history and then moving into this next me messianic prophecy and wondering, like, how does the spirit communicate in this way? Because these next two verses are clearly about Christ. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price, for I was prized of them. And I took 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So my mind immediately goes to that Bible study that Jesus gave the two, what was his name, Cleopas and his friend traveling on the road to Emmaus. And, and Jesus opens the scriptures to them and shows them, you know, deep in these these minor prophets are here, these fabulous prophecies about what would happen to the Messiah. And look, this was fulfilled in Christ's lifetime. But how does the spirit transition? I'm, I'm curious what you guys think into those those types of thoughts. Well, you know, the transition to me here is going from, you know, I'm not going to keep doing this. So then he says, I'm not going to keep doing the same thing. So just pay me what you owe me and and let's just part ways kind of thing um mm. you know as a as a as a business transaction i haven't seen it happen in in for myself but i did see it happen once with my dad doing he was doing a job and the the homeowner that he was working for just started getting different ideas of what should be happening and finally my you know finally my dad just like you know what let's just stop right here let's just stop because nothing I do is going to you, you're not going to be happy with anything I do here. And so we're just going to part ways. And so, the, you know, basically pay me for what I've done and you can have somebody else finish for you because um, because this is not working. I see. And so you're you're looking at this as a transition or there's no transition and it's a fulfillment of the remainder of what he has been saying. Mm -hmm. I but think so. It has messianic applications, yeah. which only Christ was probably able to pull out for them later. Right, yeah. I don't think it's a sudden shift. I think it's, mm -hmm. I think it's more of a... An accumulation. Of, uh, an accumulation. I have, I have been working, and I have been working, and I have been working, and you are clearly not interested in what I have for you. Um, and so let's just part ways. We'll just part ways, and, and we'll try to keep it as cordial as we can. And I'm not going to have any part of it anymore. And uh, and yes, and so, yes, it becomes messianic because, yeah, I mean, that that 30 pieces of silver feels yeah. pretty unmistakable, especially being thrown to the potter. Because what I mean, if I'm remembering the story right, Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver after the after the thing. He ended up giving it back because he felt shame. But then they what did they do? They bought it take it back he tried to take it back and they were like no we don't want that that's blood money and so he right. threw it at them so he throws it at them and they took the money and what they, they, they bought a field with it what, what they call it the potter's field is that right yeah I they called it the potter's field and we call yeah. it a potter's field to this day yeah and and so all of this when I mean, you're looking at this in hindsight and going man this seems pretty unmistakable that God is, you know, showing he's pointing out that this is going to happen. But basically, this is where we're just we're just going to have to part ways at this point, I think. is, And so I think maybe that 30 piece of silver, when you get down into Christ's time, 
and and the the priesthood is willing to pay this to try to get uh, somebody to betray Jesus. To me, that really is that's that parting. I think that's that parting of the ways really coming out. I think it's I think it's a little bit symbolic of the fallen shepherds as well. Yeah. You mean at the time of Jesus time, the, the shepherds yeah, have looking, fallen? Yeah, looking forward because the mm-hmm. religious leaders of the day were not leading properly. Right. Like when the real thing showed up, they their reaction was, again, the same thing. The flock detested me. Right. Mm-hmm. So he shows up and is like, OK, I'm the shepherd. I'm here. And they're like, yeah, we don't really want you. We'd rather have our rules and our structure and our self or self-righteous you know like all of the things all of the fall again idols all the mm-hmm. self stuff we Everything put up the idols self. and now the idols are speaking nonsense to us and we would rather have that than the real shepherd where right. where i think to me it's almost where i can obtain salvation through my works everything that i'm doing so to cast it all on you and and having you as the prime or the sole salvation i don't want to do I'd rather still continue to work for it and have all my my rules and things that I can obtain my own salvation. Mm. Yeah, I love it when God is sarcastic. It's when, it's just some of my favorite moments <laughs> in the Bible. And there was one like it was it was just like this little snarky thing. And I was like, oh, I feel so much better. Yes, it comes from my creator. I'm sure of it. It's like it's not a fallen trait. It's a divine trait. And anyway, so like in verse 13, where he talks about throwing the money, he says, throw it to the potter in the New King James. It says that princely price they set on me. Mm. Right. And then in the in the NIV, it says the handsome price at which they valued me. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that that's sarcastic because we and know I that. Will- that- we know that 30 pieces of silver was what they would pay for a slave, yeah, totally. you know, and and it's a it's it's an insulting price really to pay for a king, I guess, you know. And so, yeah, the that uh, that sarco- that little sarcasm coming from God is uh, it is a bit refreshing to know that uh, we come by it naturally, Karen. <laughs> it's a spiritual gift. <laughs> <laughs> don't I'm take you my local church sent out a thing saying hey do you know your spiritual gifts and mark them on the sheet and give it back to us and i added sarcasm to the list and then <laughs> checked the box i am not even kidding <laughs> that's hilarious oh that's funny <laughs> okay well um any other thoughts there on that on that end of that chapter um not really i think we've covered it all i think that's uh we made it we made it. We planned three chapters this week, and we made it three chapters this week. We had to go a little long to do it, but we did it. <laughs> we lost Amy somewhere along the way, but we yeah. did. It. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe she just had to go. I don't know. But, yes, um... <laughs> we talked too much, and she'd rather go hang out with her horses. Yeah, her horses. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess then that is uh, our time for this week. Next week, we will be starting in Zechariah chapter 12, and we will try to, I think, finish the book, uh, go through chapter 14. Lofty goals. Yes. You know, oh, chapter 14 short. I think we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it has been interesting, though, because it's how we've slowed down kind of through some of these prophecies because they're just so intriguing. And, and so it's, it's all good to me. 
so that will be us. Uh, our attempt for next week will be uh, Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. Uh, while you are reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org with any questions or comments. Check us out on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and make sure that you uh, share the podcast with your friends and family. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.